Welcome to show 65 of the C-Suite podcast, an episode being sponsored by Nuffield Health, who are one of the companies speaking at the Endeavour Search and Selection Wellbeing Seminar, uh, which is where we're recording today's show. It's taking place at the impressive offices of Berwyn, Leighton and Paisner Law Firm here in London Bridge. My name is Russell Goldsmith. I'm going to be chatting to a number of the event speakers covering a whole host of topics related to employee wellbeing. And so with so much to get through, I thought I'd waste no time in introducing our first guest, who is today's keynote speaker, Jeff McDonald. Jeff is the former global VP for HR at Unilever, but now is a regular industry speaker and consultant on the topics of depression and anxiety and how to address these issues within the corporate world. He also helps companies on embedding a purpose as a driver of their business performance. So I'm thrilled that he's given up uh, some time this morning to share his own personal journey with us that's uh, brought him to the work he does now. But Jeff, before we get to talk about your story, which I know is one you're keen to share and, and raise awareness of why it's so important for people to talk about their mental health, health. Could you just sum up why it's important to have a purpose, not just in our own lives, but also why businesses need to have one as well? I think purpose is, uh, is a key component to our overall well-being and helping to enhance our well-being. And I often make the link between well-being and energy. Uh, so well-being is like, you know, it's the charger to my battery. And purpose is an important element of that, you know, kind of feeling as an individual that you are giving in the world rather than just getting. And we all know the feeling we get after we've given to somebody. It really energizes us and makes us feel good about that. And so that's why I think purpose is really important at an individual level. But it's also hugely important today at an organizational level. And, you know, my experience in Unilever was seeing how this concept of purpose became a fundamental driver of the performance of Unilever because it led to having a sense of purpose with some big goals, led to us making decisions around innovation, risk mitigation, uh, growth, cost. You know, we made different decisions because of the sense of purpose and those decisions drove some of those business levers in a way that truly has enhanced the performance of that organization. Unilever's um, sort of quite, very, well, it's very well respected for the, for the purpose-driven work it does, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, yeah. very much so. And, and you know, I think it's trying very hard to show, you know, we can have a, div- a different form of capitalism. Yeah. We can have a form of capitalism which is caring, which is more long-term in its thinking, which understands that our planet has got finite resources, I mean, it's possible, uh, and I think Unilever's trying to show that. You know, this concept of doing well by doing good in the world. Excellent. Um, now, you've got a very personal reason for doing what you do, and I know you're happy to share that with us today. So over to you, really. Do you want to talk us through your story of, of how you've come ERS, to start presenting on this? ERS, you know, I mean, you might have asked me the question, well, if purpose is so important to you, well, then what's your purpose, Jeff? And, uh, you know, I have a very clear sense of purpose today. And my purpose is I just want to try and create workplaces all over the world where people in those workplaces genuinely, genuinely feel that they've got the choice to put their hand up and ask for help if they are suffering from a mental illness, in particular depression, anxiety, bipolar. Mm. Because I know that in every single workplace, everywhere in the world, every person genuinely feels they have that choice if they're suffering from a physical illness. So why in the 21st century, why in the 21st century do people in workplaces 
still not feel they genuinely have the choice to talk about their mental illness. So that's my purpose. And, and that purpose has come about as a result of my own crucible moment in life, which was back in 2008, and it happened at midnight on the 25th of January, 2008, when I woke up with a massive, massive panic attack. Now, I had never experienced a panic attack in all my life. I thought I was having a heart attack. And to cut a long story short, I ended up in a doctor's rooms at around 11 o'clock on the 26th of January. Uh, These dates are very specific in your mind, aren't they? They are so specific. And I'll tell you why they're so specific. Because the 26th of January was my daughter's 13th birthday in 2008. So you can imagine how much excitement there was in our household on the evening of the 25th of January. Here was this young girl becoming a teenager. She was going to go through a rite of passage. uh, And on the 25th of January at midnight, I have a panic attack, which leaves me in a state on the 26th of January 2008 where I cannot in any way celebrate that 13th birthday with her. And so that's why it's so ingrained in my mind, the 26th of January. And at about 11 o'clock on that day, I get diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression. And, you know, my understanding of the word depression up until that point was um, seeing Arsenal coming to the last (laughs) third of the season and again having no chance of winning the league. And it's happened for the last seven or eight years. And I would turn to my wife and say, I am depressed with this Arsenal football side. I mean, that was my understanding of the word depression. And now I get diagnosed. It's, quite, it's a throwaway term, isn't it? People say it quite a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, I'd wake up on a Saturday morning and want to go for a ride and it would be pouring with rain. And I'd turn to my wife, Debbie, and say, I'm depressed because it's raining again. Yeah. I mean, that was my understanding of the word depression. That's how I... And then guess what? You know, on the 26th of January 2008, I'm diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression. So... Um, When I leave the doctor's rooms that day, I make a decision that saves my life. And the decision I make is to talk about my illness. Um, It took a lot of courage. In some ways, I was liberated, I think, to be able to talk about it because I was diagnosed by a doctor, which liberated me to be able to talk about it. But the thing, the reason that talking about my illness saved my life was because the reaction that I got from everybody that I told, what I felt was an enormous sense of love. And how, how soon did, did you manage to talk about it at work as, as well then? Immediately. 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 Right. You know, I phoned my boss and I said, I've been diagnosed with anxiety-filled depression. I can't come back to work. I actually took three months off work. I told my family. I told my friends. But you know, Russ, the response I got was love. Mm. And, you know, I had dark moments during the time of getting better. You know, this illness, it's not like having glandular fever or a virus. You go off to the doctor, they give you some antibiotics, and with a virus in 48 hours, you feel better. You know, the medication takes six to eight weeks to kick in, and then sometimes it doesn't work and you have to try something else. And during that time, you have some really, really dark moments. And the only thing 
that prevented me from doing uh, or from taking my own life was knowing how much I was loved. Now imagine if I hadn't spoken about my illness, I wouldn't have experienced that love and I might not be here today. And you think it, 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 it got to that level, did it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But look, three months, combination of factors, medication, cognitive behavioral therapy, slowly getting back onto my bicycle, having a peer that I used to talk to who had been sick two years prior to I'd been ill and yeah. saw that he was better, which gave me so much hope that I could get better and I could get through this. That all worked for me and helped me to recover. And that worked for me. It doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody, but that worked for me. Sure. And then I slowly reintegrated myself back into work in 2008. But it was then in October of 2012, this was probably the real catalyst which got me into the work that I'm doing today. I was on my way home uh, from the office and I got a call from my wife to tell me that one of my best friends had just committed suicide. And, you know, I lay in bed that night and I thought to myself, stigma has just killed my friend. Mm. Because here I was, this is now 2012, so four years after my first bout of depression, I was recovering, I was flourishing, I was enjoying what I was doing with my work. I was alive and he was dead. And I thought, what's the difference? And the difference was... A very simple conclusion that I came to was I was able to talk about my illness and he wasn't. And it was that which, which forced me to begin to say, hey, I've got to go out and do something about this. And so October of 2012 was the beginning of my journey to go out into the workplace and to help organizations break the stigma of mental ill health because it's just not fair that we cannot talk about our mental ill health in the workplace like we can our physical ill health. And, and can you talk about some of the things that you're now doing with, with some of those businesses then? So my, my, my work today, I suppose, is, is um, probably in two particular areas. So as you described, I do a lot of speaking engagements and hopefully acting as a catalyst, a thought provoker, helping an organization open up the conversation about mental ill health in their organizations. But then also sharing with them some of what I'm seeing is good practice in addressing the stigma of mental ill health. Now, back in 2012 or middle of 2013, you know, I began to do some of that work in Unilever together with the head of HR in the UK, a guy called Tim Munden. And we uh, developed an approach to address the stigma of mental ill health in Unilever. And so with some of that experience, together with what I'm seeing across the industries, is then helping those organizations or sharing with them what would good practice look like if you're truly going to try and address the stigma of mental ill health. So there's some speaking opportunities, uh, opening up that conversation, provoking and hopefully inspiring but then also consulting to the C-suite in particular. You know, the question today, three years ago, people used to ask me in C-suites, they used to ask the question, why should we address this issue? Mm. That's not the question today. The question today is how do we address it? And I'm, I would then uh, provide them with some advice, guidance, support in the how to go about doing this. And also shifting the conversation to say, if you were to do this, how could this become 
a competitive advantage to you in an organisation. Okay. We actually had a question submitted for the show via our Twitter feed. So just for listeners' benefits, that's simply uh, at C-Suite Podcast. But I wanted to, I wanted to put it to, to you, Jeff. It's actually uh, from one of our previous guests, and that's Rachel Miller. So um, she runs All Things IC and one of the, uh, the top consultants and trainers in the UK, actually, uh, the UK PR industry for internal comms. But she's asked whether any of the companies you consult with, so I guess Unilever is, is one example, whether they have mental health first aiders in their organisation and if they have mental health policies. Too. Now, when she submitted this, she cited there's a, a report, it's called the Diversity and Inclusion Guidelines that were recently published by the Public Relations and Communications Association, that's the PRCA. And in that, it quotes that the PRCA's mental health survey um, showed that 59% of PR and communication practitioners have suffered from mental ill health. Yet alarmingly, over 90% of PR and communication employers said that he had no formal mental health policy. Um, so I don't know how that compares to other industries, but what's your, your thoughts on, on that whole issue? You know, I've been privileged over the last four years to work across an array of industries, from the army to the NHS to financial services to the law sector to consumer goods to the creative industry. And we are still in the foothills of addressing the stigma and the issue of mental ill health in workplaces. We are still in the foothills. I think we have made tremendous advances at a kind of broader societal level here in the UK. I think the awareness and understanding at that level across our society is much greater than it was three or four years ago. I think people are more comfortable outside of work to begin to talk about their mental ill health, but we're still in the foothills in workplaces. Mm. And so that doesn't surprise me, the, you know, the response or the part of the question that you've posed to me. I think organizations today are more and more looking at, so th- coming back to my point of how do we begin to address this? and are having to think about things like policies, are having to think about and begin to say, hey, we have, we have first aiders on floors around physical health. Why shouldn't we have first yeah. aiders around mental ill health? And so there are organizations out there that are, beginning, that, that are beginning to do that. So look, I think it's critical that, so I think her reflection is, is, a, is a fair one. I think there is a desire amongst organizations now to begin to look at some of, I would call that the real hygiene factor, Mm. having a policy and a mental health first aider. But wow, it is nowhere near enough to truly address the I was going to say, you say it doesn't surprise you. Does it frustrate you as well? It must be frustrating when you go to all these businesses and, and things like this aren't in it place. Does, it yeah. does frustrate me. And, you know, uh, Rome's not built in a day, and I wish it was built in a day, yeah, uh, is because of my energy and my passion around this subject. Uh, but it's a complex issue, yeah. mental health. It's far more complex than, than physical health. Uh, we've got to do it right. Um, we need to look and see what does good, good practice look like. I think we've got to go beyond just mental health and talk more broadly about people's well-being and energy as a driver of the performance of people. Uh, but it is it is frustrating. It is frustrating. And I, and I'll tell you and I'll tell you what kind of highlights that frustration is that we over the years have spent billions in health and safety. Guess what? Most of those billions has gone to safety not to health, yeah. 
gone to safety. And the only health that it might have gone to is some of the physical health of our people. Gyms in offices, benefits where you get a reduction for a particular gym, a nice canteen with good nutrition. But it's a minuscule amount that we have spent in health. And I think the time has come for us to say, no, let's now invest some of those billions in the health side of that equation. We've done it for safety. We have created safe workplaces all over the world. Do you know what I mean? In the main, workplaces are safe. Now, there's still too many fatalities that are taking place, but they are so much safer than they were 20 years ago. Mm. We've got to do the same for health and with a particular reference to mental ill health. You've actually led nicely onto the, the question I wanted to ask, which was basically what steps do, do organisations need to take to create that right environment to make people feel comfortable to, to be able to talk about their mental health and all those points you just mentioned now, you, you know, just now feel energised and, and I guess in, enhance their performance as well. Russ, there are some, look, there's some initial steps that, that, that I think organisations need to, need to, but let me go to the kind of, let me go to what my vision is for organisations to have truly address the stigma of mental ill health and are seeing mental health as part of a competitive advantage. And so what I would like to see is I would like to see organizations one day that have included the concept of energy in their performance management equation. Do you know, I spent 25 years working in human resources, leading people. I never, ever once had a formal development conversation with one of my people about their energy. And I would proclaim that probably the most important driver of performance is energy. Mm. And it might not be an extroverted energy. It might, be, it might be energy, it might be passion, it might be capacity. But we see it in sporting teams, we see it in individuals. Those that have got energy and passion and an unbelievable capacity are our best performers. That's interesting, actually, because you and you were talking about like bringing it back to football, which I quite often do on this show. But the fact that they now monitor, they talk about players being in the red zone and the yes, you know, yeah, absolutely. And we've and so you can imagine that so, in the workplace as well. So if you're not exactly, in the right, so but why, if energy is such an important driver of performance, yeah, why did I never have one development conversation yeah. with people about their energy? Why didn't I include it in the performance equation? Because the equation right now is knowledge, skill, behavior, and experience. It's n- nothing about energy. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I didn't was there were two things. One, I didn't know what it was that gives human beings energy. Now I know. It's our well-being. That's the charger to our battery. But it's our well-being at four levels. It's our physical health. It's our emotional health. It's our mental health. And have we got purpose and meaning in our lives? So now I know what it is that gives people energy. And guess what? I can also measure that now. Whereas I didn't know how to measure it. I can do a skills gap analysis and send you on a training course. I can do a 360-degree feedback and give you a coach on your behavior. So now we know what gives people energy. We can measure it. So now I can have a development conversation with people around the energy. And if I build energy into the performance management system, that then forces an organization to make sure they've got the resources in place to enhance the energy of their people, physical, emotional, mental, and purpose. Just like I can't hold you accountable uh, for your skills if I don't then send you on a skills training course. 
But because skill is an important part of performance, organizations now will invest in training courses. And so if an organization is brave enough to put energy into the performance management equation, it forces that organization to take accountability to ensure that it's putting in place the resources to enhance the energy of the people. The second thing that this then does also is it also drives individual accountability. Because you see, I don't think any of this well-being stuff is working in organizations today. I'll tell you why I don't think. It's like a tick box exercise. We have a well-being week and then we all, you know, caring to people during that week and then we just get on. And, and by the way, half the people don't even come to the well-being week or any of the events. Why don't they come? Because they're not going to be held accountable for their energy. No one's going to hold them accountable for their energy. And so I think if we can get organizations to take more accountability and individuals to take more accountability, then we get some magic. Then I think we begin to see this concept of well-being energy as of a strategic importance and a key imperative to driving the performance of individuals and the organization. Now, we can't go there, Russ, until we've addressed the stigma of mental ill health. Because if my energy score is low and I sit and talk to you as my line manager, if part of what's bringing my energy score down is my mental ill health, I will only talk to you about that and ask for your support if we've addressed the stigma. So in basic terms, what should we be doing to address the stigma? I think there are three things that we've got to have in place. The first is we need to have leaders who are as engaged and advocating for mental ill health as they do safety. Now, right now, they do it for safety because there's legislation. We've got no legislation yet in this country, but I think it could be coming. And I would suggest that leaders need to get onto the front foot. So have leaders who are truly engaged. And what does that look like, Russ? You know what that looks like? It looks like leaders telling their stories. Telling their stories. Because they've all got a story. They've all got a story. They've got a brother. They've got a sister. They've got a mother. They've got an auntie. They've got an uncle. They've got somebody who's been touched by mental ill health. They don't all have to have a story like mine. But that's what I think it looks like, is more and more leaders telling, sharing their stories around mental ill health. Opening courses, closing courses, showing that advocacy, investing, being prepared to take some money and invest in the training of their people. That's what leadership engagement and advocacy looks like. So that's the first thing. The second is, I love, I love the fact that we have some mental health first aiders on floors, but that's not good enough for me. Everybody in the organization should be trained and given a basic appreciation around mental ill health. We do it for safety. Everybody in an organization is trained around safety. Everybody. We invest in it. So why wouldn't we do the same? And it doesn't have to be a two-day program or a one. It could be a 90-minute basic appreciation, bringing up the levels of skills of everybody in the organization around what is mental ill health, what is depression, what's anxiety, what are the symptoms, how do I start a conversation with somebody who I might notice is not looking or feeling as good. So that's the second thing, is to really invest in this. And then the final bit is something around how we communicate, how we talk about it, the narrative that we create within the organization around mental health. You know, the narrative today around mental health is so negative. It's so negative. When I use the word physical health, you don't immediately go to cancer, diabetes, glandular fever. When I use the word mental health, people immediately go to depression, anxiety, bipolar. So the narrative is not, how do we create a more positive narrative? Who's the Usain Bolt for mental health? If I walked into a Nike store tomorrow, I would see chiseled whippets all over the walls. 
And I would feel inspired to go and buy myself a pair of running shoes if I'm not looking great. When, what are the images I see around mental health? The images are also negative. People with their hands in their head, black and white photographs. What's inspirational and aspirational about maintaining my mental health? Or do we call it mental fitness? Or do we call it mental hygiene? But I think it's really important as the third bit is to campaign, is to, to change the narrative around mental ill health within the organization. So yes, let's get energy into the performance management system. Let's hold organizations and individuals accountable for enhancing their energy. And when we've got both of those being accountable, we get magic. And this really begins to, I think, stick in organizations. We can't do that if we haven't addressed the stigma of mental ill health in an organization. And best practice around that looks like leadership engagement and advocacy, investment in training, and shifting the narrative where there's a far more positive narrative. Guess what? We're all mental. And we're all physical. And I don't like the number one in four, one in five, one in six are going to suffer from a mental illness. I think it's one in one, like Alistair Campbell says. We all wake up some days not feeling mentally well. We all experience it. So the sooner we can acknowledge that and the sooner we can normalize that, the better for individuals, for organizations, and for society. Jeff, this has been absolutely fascinating and, and, and brilliant that you've, uh, your passion and your drive for this, but also you talked about leaders sharing your, their stories. Thank you for sharing yours genuinely. If people uh, and listeners want to find out more about the work that you're doing in this space, where, where's the best place for them to go and reach you? Well, you can find me as Jeff MacDonald on LinkedIn, or you can also find me, my email address is jeffmacdonald90 at gmail.com. Fantastic. Uh, Jeff MacDonald, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Raz. Joining me now is Alana Lenny, who is Director of Business Development at this episode's sponsors, Nuffield Health. So, Alana, first of all, thanks uh, so much to Nuffield Health for supporting the show. Your colleague and Chief People Officer, uh, Sharon Bridgeland-Goff, has been talking here at the conference. I was just thinking, for the benefit of our listeners who obviously weren't here, um, could you just give a quick overview of uh, what the key part of her talk was about? Yeah, of course. So Sharon was here today to talk about how mental health and physical health are inextricably linked and also talking a little bit about how uh, understanding risk at an individual level within your employee base actually leads to a better well-being strategy. Um, she also talked through a few examples of Nuffield Health clients and, and how uh, we've supported our customers to improve the health and well-being of their employee base. Um, now, you were personally quoted in, a, in an article in the FT's work and career section um, just recently about how managers can put data on sick leave to a healthy use. And in it, you said, analysing aggregated data that have been anonymised can suggest strategies for mitigating or preventing work-related health problems. I was just wondering if you can share details maybe of how you know, any of your clients have actually used the data in, in this way. So I think quite often when we're working with customers, they come to us because they want to purchase a specific service. Um, and we were recently working with one utilities company and they, they wanted to buy physiotherapy for all of their staff, which is great. Because it shows that they have, um, I guess, you know, a good attitude to health and well-being and they want to create a culture where people thrive. But actually reviewing their absence data, what we could see was that there was a huge amount of risk within mental health, within their call centre environment. And actually by providing physiotherapy services, we weren't actually meeting the needs of their people. So what we then did was develop on-site CBT services for the call centre environment and leadership resilience training, but also allowed their engineers to access musculoskeletal um, services, so physiotherapy within our network. 
I think that demonstrates that actually whilst providing equitable services for your employees is important, actually money should follow risk and there are more ways to be equitable than just providing the same thing for everyone. Are you able to go into any specific detail about how you've seen the impact of that uh, on a particular um, case study, like a uh, sure. workplace? Yeah, so we, we work with a, a car manufacturer and um, they are quite unique as a business because they have a huge amount of data. Um, and in fact, as you can imagine, with manufacturing people to pr- that are presenting either with ill health, so musculoskeletal issues, that might affect the quality. But if they're going off sick, then that really affects the volume of output. Mm. And in car manufacturing, that cost is so significant. Um, so working with them, I think they were just overwhelmed by the amount of data that they had. All of their senior leadership team is KPI'd on absence, um, because as I said, it's such a such an important metric for production. Um, and what we could see was there was musculoskeletal issues throughout the business, but there were specifically high areas of prevalence of ankle conditions, um, particularly in certain locations. So we sent physiotherapists out to those locations. And what they did was functional analysis. And, and what we could see there is where you're hanging, and um, forgive me because these are probably not the correct terms for this, but where you're hanging doors on a car, actually you have to um, hammer them in and people weren't really wearing appropriate footwear. So what we could see was that there was a a load of impact going down one side of a body. So we made two very simple and cheap interventions. One was we provided every employee at that car manufacturer with boots, had appropriate foot foot and ankle support. And the second was that we actually rotated them. So they moved from the left-hand side to the right-hand side of the car at regular intervals. And that's completely mitigated that risk. So whilst there is still some conditions, it's at a much lower frequency um, and ultimately achieved their objective of reducing the cost of absence within that business. Right, that's really interesting. Um, now, you've recent, uh, Nuffield uh, Health have recently carried out a survey across a number of companies uh, with over a 1,000 employees um, looking into a number of things, such as how they measure absence management. I was just wondering if you can share some of those findings with us. Sure. So we, we carried out a survey to companies with over a 1,000 employees because what we wanted to understand was um, how people are investing in their well-being of their people and what services that they were procuring. Um, And some of the interesting things that it threw threw up was, the first one was actually 30% of people aren't actually measuring any absence whatsoever. And when you think about the cost to the business, absence is a significant cost. Um, and, And what we also found was that there was a direct correlation between people not measuring absence and them not understanding the risk within their business. So 30% of respondents had no idea what issues were most prevalent within their employee population. Um, So so it was quite interesting, in fact, because actually I recently did a presentation and the vast majority of people within the audience of about 100, they were measuring absence. But when you were distilling that down and asking how many people were using that to drive their healthcare strategy, only one person kept their, their hand up. So what we can see here is that there is a huge opportunity for us to offer better services to our employees that actually addresses the needs within their business just by being a little bit more considered about our approach. It's quite a high number in terms of not measuring absenteeism. I find that yeah, I, I was staggered su- by it. By yeah, really surprised. Yeah. And, you know, actually within our clients, what, what we tend to find is people measure absence, but it might not be 
good yeah. um, in terms of the, the, you know, not everyone has same day absence programs or mandated processes. But what we what we tend to find is actually people will measure absence, but particularly in corporate environments. And a lot of our, our customers are banks, financial services, etc. Actually, when people are ill, they're at home still logging on, they're working on emails, even though they are ill yeah. and should be off work. And that creates a different problem around presenteeism. Do, so, you, think, do you think that's a, a, a pressure that people have that they should, you know, if you're ill, you should, you know, take the time off. But there's always that pressure to carry on working from home because you can. Yeah, I think because you can, you're more connected. I think it's the same with people working out of hours. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually, you know, should you be working from seven in the morning till eleven o'clock at night, and are you going to be doing the best work that you can be, and how is that going to impact on your mental health? So, I think actually culturally, the culture within an organisation is really important. We, I know of some companies where they've put sleep pods within their businesses, and I've, you know, I've got a, my own view on that. But it's really important that there's a top-down initiative in terms of this is the way in which we work as a business, and okay. this is what we expect from you. Okay. So to finish off, what, what would be your key message about how companies should be using you know, all this data that you can collect to support employee well-being? So I think for, for my, my experience is that all progressive companies understand that there is a direct correlation between employee health and well-being and outcomes, whether they're cultural, whether they're financial. Um, but ultimately, every company that I speak to, money is, is, a, is an issue, it's budgetary constraints. And therefore, if a business is spending money, it should be doing the things that resonate most with their employees. And therefore, using data to drive their strategy makes sense because they're providing appropriate services to the people that need it most. And, and ultimately, they're going to get a better return as a business. Okay. And so if our listeners want to find out any more information, where do they need to go? Just come to our website. We've got a corporate section on the website at nuffieldhealth.com. Fantastic. Um, Alana, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Helping your employees look after their health and well-being is good for your business, but it can feel difficult. And while off-the-shelf solutions are frequently one-size-fits-all, at Nuffield Health, we build a strategy that addresses your workforce challenges. As the leading provider of corporate well-being in the UK, we have over 10 years of experience helping employers address physical and mental health issues at work and providing the ROI. To discuss your corporate well-being needs, why not get in touch at nuffieldhealth.com. Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast here at the Endeavour Search and Selection Wellbeing Seminar with me, Russell Goldsmith. And joining me now is Monica Carlia, co-founder of Neighbour. Uh, Monica has just finished speaking here at the event about the financial side of well-being in the workplace. So do you want to just give us a quick overview of what you were talking about in your presentation this morning? Yeah, morning. Nice to be here. Um, so we were focusing on financial well-being, um, as you highlighted. Um, and I think we've heard from a range of speakers today um, around um, broader well-being, um, and most um, organisations that we speak to are quite comfortable with the idea of physical well-being a priority. Um, so the idea is that you know employers need to support in terms of private medical, gym memberships and all the things that go to physical wellness. Um, I think mental well-being is also now starting to be quite well understood um, and obviously we heard from the speaker from mine today as well. Financial well-being is something which has really come on the radar over the last two or three years um, and I think Neighbours been kind of driving some of that discussion around financial well-being. Um, and this is the idea that as an employer, my responsibility for my employees' financial wellness doesn't just begin and end at the paycheck. Ultimately, employers do need to do more. What we've done at Neighbour is to commission a survey um, over the last couple of years, trying to delve more deeply into this topic of financial wellness. 
This is your DNA report, isn't it, that you're talking about? Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I took a look at that, actually, before doing this podcast, doing my little bit of research, obviously. I actually thought we could do a whole podcast on, on, the, on the topic, just discovering survey results. But obviously, we've only got a few minutes. But I was just wondering, therefore, if you can just share some of the key headlines that came out of that. Yeah, so we surveyed um, 10,000 UK employees uh, and we asked them a range of questions about how they felt about their financial situation. And I think the key stat is that 58% of people that we surveyed, so more than one in two people in the UK, have said that they've been um, impacted by financial worries at some point in the last year. You're repeating that again for 2018? Yes, indeed. We've actually just finished commissioning the 2018 survey. Can you share anything, Um, any exclusive stats that we can Well, I guess, you know, the sneak peek in terms of headline stat, and perhaps not surprisingly, um, is that has been an increase in the impact of financial worries. Um, So that 58% figure that I mentioned has actually gone up. Um, So it's now about 62% of people in the UK have been impacted by financial worries. So nearly two-thirds of the population are saying this is a cause for concern. Yeah, definitely. So how are you? How are you actually working with your clients to help improve the financial well-being then of of their employees? So as I said, financial well-being is now starting to be better understood, um, and that's through the survey work that uh, Neighbour has put out there. Um, There are a range of different providers in the market um, that offer different things, you know, financial education, sort of financial products. That could be wealth management. It could be ISAs, for example. Um, And Neighbour's been going for about four years now, and we come at it from the perspective of building a financial well-being strategy. Um, So it's important not just to deliver education. It's important not to just deliver a product. Employers that we speak to want a strategy that's going to cover their employees, and they want that financial well-being strategy to link in with other things that they provide. So how does it link in with their mental well-being strategy, and how does it link in with their EAP provider, for example? And so what we talked about today was a case study of an employer that we've recently um, started working with in the last six months um, that approached us to actually help them um, understand what they need to do um, to understand the problem that may be facing their employees and put in place a strategy to support that. It's quite a taboo topic, isn't it, within the workplace? Yeah, and I think that's the problem. So, you know, much like much like mental well-being, people don't like to talk about it. There is a stigma. Um, and obviously mental health has now become much more accepted. Um, and we're pretty confident that because of the measures that employers are starting to put in place from the perspective of financial well-being, uh, employees will start to feel more comfortable talking about their financial situations. Uh, and that has to be a good thing. Um, so if listeners want to see a copy of the, the DNA of Financial Wellbeing Report, Where's the best place for them to, uh, to get a hold of that? Well, they can go to our website um, and fill in one of the uh, contact forms and we will obviously mail them a copy of that report. We're expecting it to be published in May. Um, it's got some great stats and facts in it. Um, I think the one thing that I would also highlight is that because we've surveyed 10,000 employees, we've got statistically representative samples of all key industry sectors. So perhaps you work in retail or you work in manufacturing and you actually want to say, how do retail employees look relative to the UK average? Um, and we can actually play that back to you in our survey. And the website address is? Neighbour.co.uk. Excellent. That's uh, N-E-Y-B-E-R for uh, anyone that wasn't sure. Um, but that's great. Uh, Monica Carlia, uh, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. So next to join the show is Alan Fogarty, a partner at Cundall, a company of consulting engineers whose focus is on designing environmentally friendly, sustainable buildings. Uh, but the reason Alan's been presenting at the event today is because he's been talking through how he implemented the well building standard in his London office fit out, achieving a gold level for what is the first certified project of its kind. So welcome to the show, Alan. First question, I guess, is how does a building impact on the wellness of those working within it? Well, I 
think if you look at kind of a common sense type approach to that, it's making people feel first and foremost comfortable in the space. So if you're not thermally comfort, comfortable, if you don't have decent standards of lighting and good quality of water standards, then people won't be comfortable, they won't be feeling healthy. Air quality equally is just as important. So if there's not sufficient quantities of fresh air, you're going to get increased levels of CO2. People can't concentrate, they can't perform cognitively. So it's getting all those basic things that we all basically need in the first instance. But then there's a whole range of things after that. So it needs to be aesthetically pleasing because you could have the most healthy office in terms of air quality and water quality, but actually it's so depressing to be in that you just don't want to be there. Personally, I think one of the things that is key is daylighting. And you have good levels of daylighting in the space. People are actually very forgiving about lots of other things, including air quality to a certain extent. And we've certainly noticed in our own office that the air quality, because we've got so many more people in than we originally started, has got worse. And the temperatures as a result too have got higher, but people are still quite happy because it's a nice environment, we've got great daylighting, and one is actually compensating for the other. Can you tell us a little bit about the World Standard and how you came about achieving the first certified project in Europe? Absolutely. Well, it was kind of fortuitous, really. I got a phone call from our Australian office asking had I heard about the standard, and I said no. Uh, So I immediately looked it up to see what it was, and it seemed to be kind of interesting and common sense. And I said, well, aren't we doing all these things anyway? So um, I very quickly, very shortly after that, I got a phone call from our Hong Kong office asking the same question. So it clearly was something that was um, um, moving quickly around the world. Uh, We happened to be in the situation where we were thinking about what we were going to do with our own London office, whether we would stay or whether we'd move was down to kind of negotiations with landlords, but we were going to do something. So I kind of said, well, let's apply the well-building standard to whichever way we go and um, we'll see where we get to. So we literally just picked it up and ran with it. And the view we had was, well, we'll just use it as an opportunity to learn about the standard. If we can get certified, we will. If we don't, we don't. So let's just see how we go. And, and can you give some detail of what you implemented to, to actually achieve this gold standard then? Yeah, well, the, the, the first thing in terms of getting any kind of uh, certification is you have to get these preconditions. So our focus were on these things, and that's about the air quality and the water quality. So we had to get the water tested. We had to look at the, the volumes of air available within the office itself. The, the real issue actually was the, the water quality because we were higher than the wealth target World Health Organization levels of nickel, which meant that we had to get some kind of filter into the space. The filters that were available commercially, which is what we wanted to use, the Thames Water wouldn't accept them as being acceptable to connect because they hadn't been what's called RAS approved, even though all the components were RAS approved, so it's all very complicated. And in the end, we put in a, a domestic filter instead, which is a more expensive ongoing cost for us. So it can be quite an expensive exercise, and it, it'll take a bit more negotiation and work with the filter companies and the uh, water companies. And the other aspect is that even things like furniture, trying to find out what is in the furniture and whether it's compliant with the American standards, which is what we had to measure it against. Now, that's become easier because the well-building standard has adopted UK standards, but it doesn't cover everything that we need to look at. So it's getting easier, but for us, it was actually a very hard process. You, you ring up a manufacturer and say, does your product comply with the uh, Southern Californian code for VOCs? And the person just 
has no idea how to respond to that. It may well do, but they just can't tell you yes or no. So that was a very lengthy exercise. Right. And what about aesthetically? In, in your talk, you were talking about some of the things that you put on the walls, but also, um, you know, for the nu- nutrition as, as well, you're providing you know, fruit and veg and, and places to eat. Yes. It will, it, it, well, typically isn't prescriptive. There's certain things where you are required to do certain things which had a big impact on what we did. So, for example... We were required to have seating space for 30% of the staff so that they could all eat together effectively. There wasn't many places where we could put that, so actually the canteen area was brought right to front of house because that was the only place where it logically sat, which is kind of high risk for us uh, because it meant everything was on show when somebody came in the door. Mm. But actually it's been tremendously successful. It's very well used by the staff, so people sit there at lunchtime, they have breakfast there, it's used throughout the day. But equally, when somebody comes in the door, there's a buzz, and people go in who've been with us a number of times before. They'll get, go up to the reception, say that they are there. They'll go and make themselves a cup of coffee. They'll sit down on the bench, and they'll just start working till the person arrives. So it's a very kind of homely, comfortable feel to the space, uh, which is enjoyed by all um, visitors and by the staff itself. So that's been really positive. And, and how has this impacted on, on what you recommend your own clients now, then? I think it's been very positive. We've got new clients as a result of it. Lots of people we wanted to come and see. And it's kind of... So what, you're, you're actually using your own office almost as a, as a showroom? Very much so, yeah. yeah. Well, no messing. We've had probably about 2,000 people plus come through the office wow. wanting right. to see it. And, you know, there's nothing particularly special about it. It's an office. It's nice. But there's nothing there you'd say, this is amazing, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, although people do say it's amazing, but that's their perception on it. And I think the amazing thing, to my mind, is the amount of daylight, but that's a different thing. But the point is that clients like it because we're practicing what we preach, and when we talk to them about things, they understand that we're talking from the basis of knowledge rather than just rhetoric. And what about the cost of implementing a program like this, and also how are you measuring its impact on actual employees? Well, the cost was fairly modest. It was probably around £200 a person, which is very little compared to the cost of um, paying agency fees, which are anywhere between six and ten thousand pounds, churn costs are twenty, thirty thousand pounds, and if they make a mistake, we can get sued, which is potentially millions. So that alone says that's good, and we know that it's having a positive impact on people because people tell us the air quality is better, they tell us they like the space better. We've done surveys, which have shown a big jump from our previous office. Other type of metrics is quite difficult. Measuring productivity is very difficult. People have told us they're more productive, mm. but how do you actually measure that? We have looked at some of the HR statistics, and the suggestion is that our absenteeism has reduced by 50%, but you do get a jump or a bounce when you move office because it's just a nice new environment and stuff. And we compared this with our Newcastle and Edinburgh office, and their bounce was around 25 27%. So we got extra bounce, so to speak, in our London office. And... If you transfer that into a financial cost, it's probably saved us about £200,000. So that was very low cost compared to 30000 we invested within the well-building right. standard. So all very fascinating stuff, Alan. If our listeners want to find out more information about the well-being standard, where's the best place for them to go? The best place would be the IWBI's website. So they have all the details in relation to the well-building standard. They, you can download the manual and you can see what types of projects it is applicable to. Equally, I can be more than happy to um, respond to any questions that people would like to ask me. Fantastic. And so if they want to get hold of you, what's the the Cundall uh, website address? Cundall, C-U-N-D-A-L-L dot com. That's great. Alan, uh, thanks very much for joining the show. My pleasure. Thank you. 
My next guests are Holly Price, who is Training and Development Director at Kelpray Group, and Daniel Rain, Global Director for Consulting and Business Intelligence at Hogg Robinson Group. Now, Kelpray is a specialist business that offers engineering, construction, and demolition, amongst a whole host of other services and solutions uh, that I'm sure Holly can tell us during our chat. And HRG, uh, Hogg Robinson Group, um, helps their clients on their travel meetings and events, expenses, and related data. Uh, so Holly and Daniel were both just part of a panel sharing their company's uh, well-being journeys in the final session of the day. So we're going to get them to share those with us too. Um, but Holly, uh, let's come to you first. Do you mind just getting back to the start of your own story? Of course. I'm Holly Price, and as you know, and I work for Kelpbray. We are a, a specialist engineering uh, service group, and we work across infrastructure in the railways, in, in civil engineering, so on and so forth. And we're a very, very people-focused business because of, by default, obviously, because our output absolutely comes reliant on uh, the physical attributes of the people in the business. And so... We, we've been on a bit of a journey in recent years where the construction industry as a whole has suddenly, I don't know how to describe it really, maybe it's, it's certainly become a, a recent focus where we're talking about mental health and well-being in general. Something that's been a bit taboo, in all honesty, in the construction sector. So I'm very pleased personally that it's come to the fore because my own journey in the last few years has absolutely been focused on the fact that a few years ago, I was struggling myself, and so I needed to find some solutions to that. Subsequently, it does mean that I've been able to bring some of those solutions into the business. So is it okay if I ask you, you know, to, to give a little bit more sort of detail in terms of what those personal issues that you had and, and how that's led to what you're doing now? Um, there, there's one specific um, issue that springs to mind, in all honesty, and I was in, happened to be in a meeting one day, and I'd known for a while, a while that I was struggling, don't get me wrong, I was tired all the time, extremely irritable, um, couldn't focus and things and, and symptoms like those. And I, um, I was in this particular meeting at work one day, and genuinely... I couldn't really string a sentence together and I, d I didn't really know why. Um, I could feel the energy inside of me, just it, nothing was working right and I didn't really know what to do about it. And obviously I was aware that of the energy I was bringing to the party <laughs> at that juncture and obviously the meeting went terribly badly and um, I ended up leaving the room and going and sitting in the bathroom and crying and all the other lovely things that happens when when in all honesty you're exhausted and you're on the verge of something not very nice and so I had to recognize that and I and I swore to myself at that juncture that in all honesty that would never happen again and I went on then a bit of a, a mission to seek something that would help me feel better I had um, a number of years ago been um, as I'm sure a lot of people have um given antidepressants from a doctor for another issue um, a number of years ago, and I definitely didn't want to go there again. Um, so I thought there has to be something <laughs> that we can do, and or that I could do. And so I, I started search, searching the industry, obviously working in learning and development, I'm thinking, well, there has to be something out there. And so on that basis, I found lots of stress management type training and all sorts of weird and wonderful things that that some people were doing and I just couldn't connect with any of it to be honest because I felt very much like people were telling me um, over and over again what my symptoms were but I was I was very aware of that and on the other side of the coin they were also saying well you know there's a lot of um, advice was saying well go and get some more sleep or spend some more time in nature or do this and, and in all honesty if I 
could have done that, I absolutely would have done that. So in all honesty, it ended up being a situation where I just got a little bit more frustrated and I couldn't really see the wood for the trees. And in the end, I ended up stumbling across um, a white paper from St. Bart's Hospital, which was talking about energetics and heart rate variability and the fact that we can actually measure human performance or human energy. And that really tells us whether you're good, bad or, or not. And so that led me again to another institute in California who I was fortunate enough to end up um, doing some work with and and really learning some very very basic techniques, which ultimately has led me here today. Well, that's what, I mean. It was interesting because Jeff, when when I spoke to Jeff earlier, that was the key thing that he was on, talking about in terms of energy. You know, raising those energy levels and keeping them at a good level uh, for productivity. I was just wondering how any of those techniques. Can you share some of those techniques? on how they impact on your energy? It, it can get very, very complicated, so I'll try my best not to make it so. The easiest way of bringing yourself back into the moment, and it's not about having to go and sit in a darkened room to do, to do any of these things or even having to take time out. Absolutely, eyes open in the moment, whether you're in the boardroom or whether you are cleaning the toilets or whatever it may be that you're doing and you're feeling like you need some help or you need to change whatever's happening at that moment in time there is a technique called heart focused breathing now if you went onto the internet in all honesty and you put that into the search engine you would get a video something would show you how to do that and but what that actually is is it's a slowing down almost and it is a very very simple breathing technique which is breathing five seconds in five seconds out um, and focusing the attention on your heart if you can at that moment sometimes you can't because sometimes you feel a bit too stressed to even do that so even the sheer act of doing the five seconds in five seconds out breathing technique will center you and bring you back into focus right um daniel let's bring you into the conversation here with you know we're discussing energy levels i guess that's something that obviously needs to be considered if you're traveling lots through business so you know things like long flights and and long drives what, what's your thoughts on on that yeah, it's interesting how the themes of today have kind of woven together somewhat. And I think, um, and perhaps I'll borrow some of the language from, from what I've heard today, but I just recognise myself as, as being a, a frequent long-haul traveller. Just the impact it has on you, and not just you, but also those around you. So from a sense of, you can call it energy or resilience, but it, it's, it's, it's very tiring to travel. Um, people often think it's glamorous and it's you know exciting to be in, and, and for sure sometimes it can be, but if you talk to anyone who travels a lot, the novelty of going to a new place quite quickly disappears and, well, the, and the yearning to be at home is kind of strong. I was going to say, most of the time it's a long flight, you see a, a hotel and a conference room and then you come back again. Yeah, often that's, that's the case, yeah, in places yeah. you don't choose to go in the first place, but yeah. it's not, not, not where you take your family holiday in the Maldives. But yeah, so it tends to be um, much more tiring, pressured, stressful than it is. And, and I'm not an HR professional at all. I look after our consulting and business intelligence, but the kind of frustration, I guess, and this is perhaps where th these things collide somewhat, is that our clients are often very procurement focused. That is, they're just, and as an industry, we're very good at helping people manage their costs down all the time. Um, so it's all about trying to get from A to B as cheaply as possible yeah. and spending less. And I guess I'm kind of, to me, there's a bit of a juxtaposition between, between that often and, and what does that do for the experience of the traveller. And what I kind of often try to talk to talk to our clients about or think about as we're spending money even within my own team is to think how do I make sure that if I'm, if I'm going to be spending this money that I get my maximum return on investment 
i.e. that person's going to go and do their job really, really well when they land from wherever they, whether it's meeting a client or having a, a meeting with one of their colleagues or performing a, an engineering task, whatever, whatever it might be, or blowing something up in, in your business <laughs> case. But, you know, it, it's, you, you want people to perform at their best when they get there. Yeah. And so, we just, and so I, I guess my encouragement really is to be really cognitive of the role that, that travel has in that. Um, and equally recognizing on the flip side, from on the more negative side, w- what it can do to you in terms of being fatigued and tired and, and stressed and um, you know, recovering from jet lag and, and uh, build up of work as you've been away traveling, it kind of inevitably happens. And but just trying to think more holistically around our travel spend and bringing it into this well-being light a bit more, and encouraging both people who I normally deal with in, in, in our travel procurement world and HR professionals at their seminar today, can we, can we join this thinking up a bit more? You, just picking up on, on what you were saying about the intelligence and the, the data side of it, I know you guys provide a dashboard for companies that monitors the trips and hours travelled by the employees. I've had a, a quick look at some of the, the stuff you, you share yeah. online. It, it does look fascinating because it shows who's at risk of travel fatigue. I thought that was quite interesting. Can, can you just explain how that is, how it all works and how it's used by your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've got a lot of data within our industry. It's um, whether that's expense data or credit card spend data or from the booking engines. and So the, the, we've got a lot of data. We're just trying to use it in this realm, really. And, and I guess I, I think use the mantra we, we we measure what we manage or we manage what we measure and well-being is often a very difficult thing to measure but actually with this travel data can help bring that to life or at least highlight some risks around that so so we work with um just some very easily accessible travel kpis you know how how long you've been out uh, how many trips you've done how long you've been out the country for how many time zones you've crossed how many weekend trips you've done a few other things around indirect flights and things just to kind of um give give a picture really of those people within your organization who may be most at risk of just being tired out or their well-being may be damaged or they might not be performing at their optimal level you know whatever language you want to use just to say that these are people someone within your organization should be taking some kind of view of this um, and that can be down to a, a line manager level. Maybe they're the best people to make the decision about that trip or whether it's a, a talent man- management level or an HR level or a CEO level even. But I kind of think want to empower some individuals within our clients' business to really make some well-informed decisions around travel, which isn't always just about getting the cheapest possible price. I was just interested, Daniel, you mentioned there something about about what we spend when we're traveling and so on and so forth. And obviously, on the subject of energy, I was just thinking, obviously, we're talking here in monetary terms, but actually, what what are we spending physically, energetically, when we're traveling for several hours overnight? And it would be interesting to see... And I guess where the industry can go from here as to how we can start weaving that into uh, the thought process as well. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting point because the focus, and partly because it's important for bottom lines of a company and partly because it is easy to manage, the the physical cost of the trip is easy to get hold of. I think your your point's really interesting around what toll is it taking on my resilience? been speaking with a guy from Optimal Life as an example and they, and they have the wearables and I know your organization's kind of exploring that as well yeah. just to like can I get can I get a very physical feedback to say this is what it's costing <laughs> if you like mm. and I know that's something that you guys have, have been exploring as well absolutely I think when it comes to um, and it's been enlightening for me um, as an engineer myself to look at 
the energy patterns that I can't believe actually I've known about you know the physics of it all my life and never ever applied it to myself which is you yeah. know, a bit shocking really but the um when we look at the you know power output of people it suddenly because everything became a lot clearer for me and and now it's really easy to see even when we were in the panel in there just a little, a little while ago that it, we were coming up to lunchtime yeah. and people were energetically being affected by that and they needed a break so you know ultimately how do we record uh, potentially or remind people that we need to actually be recharging our batteries throughout the day yeah and it's that kind of interesting whose responsibility of it and i know you're kind of exploring that a bit as well is it because by having something physically on me it's, it's, a, it's a reminder for myself but i also think up and down the organization people need to take responsibility as well sometimes you need someone to help you out in these things and and I think partly it's been a lot of my education today, but but just trying to give permission for people to have that conversation as well. Sometimes within um, organisations, and ours may be one of those, where there's a certain uh, machismo around travelling, as an example, where we're the road warriors. That's the words that are often used to describe people who travel a lot. And they're warriors. They're kind of they're the ones fighting at the front line. And there's a certain it could be a macho piece around that. And it's not to say that all organisations want to go down this route, but my encouragement for them is to say if with giving them some data whether that's the travel data or you know the wearable or something by giving them some data are you allowing the conversation to open up are you giving permission for someone to say yeah i'm tired or i need a break mm. um rather than just always battling through because the, the risk is both a to the health of the individual but b that you spend that money and the guy doesn't deliver what you you know from a performance perspective you're not you, uh, the company's not benefiting as, as they should do from this Interesting. Uh, Holly, I just want to come back to what you were talking about in terms of stress management. So, you know, obviously you've gone through that personal journey. What I was keen to understand is how you go from helping yourself to translating that into an entire business of more than what you've got, 1,500 people in the company? Yeah, we've, uh, well, it wasn't for the faint-hearted, to be honest with you. And it, once I'd realised that actually there's some really, really simple things that you can do, I had this burning desire to take it into the uh, workplace because I knew there were so many other people that needed it but I was really fearful at the same time I'm not gonna lie you know it is a very male-dominated industry it is a very I think we've used the word macho already so I'll stick with that one Mm. in the sense that we don't have conversations that surround mental health. I mean, mental health in the construction industry, we've barely been talking about for a year. And we're still very much in the in the realms of um, mental health first aid and things. We're not really talking about um, prevention that I'm aware of anyway and how, how we can get there. And I was very aware, having been... Um, you know, reinvented myself once already in my career, saying I'm an explosives engineer and now I'm in learning and development. And all of a sudden, I'm going to rock up and tell these people who have known me for 20 years in these capacities to start talking to them about the connection between their heart and their brain. And I'm thinking, on the day I was doing this for the first time, I was beside myself. I was like, I was using every technique I knew because I was terrified of of going to talk to the guys about it because I had no idea what their reaction was going to be. But I can honestly say that I was more than pleasantly surprised and the feedback afterwards was fantastic. And there is one particular gentleman um, who I have known since I started my engineering apprenticeship when I was 16 who... Um, is a project manager in the demolition sector and, again, extremely stressful environment. And he turned around to me one day and said, Holly, what's going on with you? You're different. 
And that's when I knew that, you know, let's do something. Even if people think I'm completely bonkers, let's do it anyway. <laughs> well, you've now got a podcast that you can share with everyone yeah, as well. We so <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, Holly Price and Daniel Rain, uh, thanks again for joining the show. We are back after this. Endeavour Search and Selection offers international executive search and headhunting recruitment solutions to help you find the very top board level and senior talent across all disciplines. We also run sector-specific HR forums with HR directors from over 250 blue chip companies sharing best practice and exchanging ideas and information on HR policy. If you need help managing a senior selection assignment, get in touch at EndeavourSearch.com. And so we come to our final interview of the podcast. Joining me now is another of today's speakers, Kirsten Samuel, CEO of Camwell. So you've this morning been um, talking about the whole holistic approach to employee well-being. Do you, do you want to share um, some of the things that, that you were speaking about? Yeah, sure. I mean, we heard um, at the start of the morning um, about a number of different angles from your financial well-being angle to your physical, mental, the building angle. And, um, you know, they were all really interesting to be honest, but I think we're missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the potential of bringing all of these parts together to create infinitely more value for your people in your organisations. You may be familiar with the expression, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. One plus one equals three. And creating a well-being, a holistic well-being programme is, is, is a really great example of doing that. Everything's connected from your mind, your body, your financial um, well-being, your relationships. Uh, and interestingly, the, the social aspect is, is an area that's increasingly important, and I would always encourage organisations to include in their programmes because inherently we're all social beings. 90% of the wiring in our brains is to do with how we process social and emotional information, yet it's often one of those forgotten aspects. And I know it might sound obvious, bringing wellbeing programmes together and bringing all the different pillars of your programme together, but the fact is a lot of organisations still aren't in the place of doing that. Many organisations look too narrowly at wellbeing. Certainly in our experience, the organisations that are the most successful and are able to demonstrate a real return on investment on their programmes are those that bring everything together, both from a holistic wellbeing model perspective, so all the different pillars of their wellbeing programme working together cohesively, and also in the execution and delivery of the programme. It might be that part of your organisation over here is, is running a, a mindfulness intervention or some mental health training for their line managers or Pilates classes. But what good is that if that's in complete isolation to anything else and that your wellbeing programme isn't a centrally driven strategic initiative? So I think in terms of where we need to get to in terms of the landscape and, and the roadmap, what we really need to be thinking about is how we shift the narrative. We're all familiar with the prevention is better than cure narrative, but I don't think that's really ambitious enough because at the end of the day, narratives create realities and, and that's what we're looking at. We spend a lot of time in our lives being told what we shouldn't do. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't eat junk food, don't stay up late. But what a negative lens to see our lives through. And I think what we need to be doing is shifting the narrative to a place that is actually about how can we encourage and inspire our employees to really take care of all aspects of their well-being. And it's that that creates highly energised, highly motivated, thriving individuals and organisations. Now, some organisations may choose to run a well-being programme purely for the purpose of preventing their staff getting sick. And if they want to do that, well, firstly, that's great. They've, you know, they've thought about it. But... Are they missing the trick? 
The more forward-thinking organisations are those that realise it's not about employees, but it's actually about humans. And humans needing that sense to feel valued, to be appreciated, and not just seen as units of productivity. And it is important, and employers should care, because what we do, where we work, to a large extent, defines who we are. I often say, what's the first question you typically ask someone that you meet for the first time? What's your name and where do you work? And the point is, we spend a huge chunk of time at work and we all want to feel a sense of pride a sense of purpose and ultimately feel good about what we do and I think there's a real opportunity and also a really important part for organizations and employers to play in helping their people lead rich fulfilling successful thriving lives and all the other benefits are really secondary so for any organization that's either halfway through their well-being program or literally at the infancy of their program there are a few things that I would suggest thinking about firstly take an honest look at why you're running a well-being program in the first place is it just lip service is it a tick box exercise or do you actually mean business and you're really going to do this And that means being backed up by board-level commitment. It means having the resources and also the funding behind you to make a real success of it. Research and involve your people in helping you shape your programme. There's no point throwing lots of money at a wellbeing programme if you don't know your baseline. You don't know your starting point. You've no idea what the biggest challenges are in the organisation. And you don't know what your people want because you haven't taken the time to ask them. Well, I was actually going to ask you about the challenges that, that companies are facing. So you've sort of like started on that there. But, you know, what other challenges are, you know, are there that they're going to face in terms of trying to understand this whole area of, of well-being? One of the, the big challenges now, is, as you're probably well aware, is that the well-being market is becoming a really crowded space. There's lots of different providers out there offering all manner of things from yoga classes to financial education to mindfulness courses and it's actually really understanding what the right solutions are for your organization at the the the, the time of the journey that you're on at the moment so that brings me to the internal piece which is one of the biggest challenges that companies face is that they don't actually know what they've got Some of the organisations are so large, and as you'd expect, they've got lots of things, from occupational health to EAP to gyms to um, training going on in this part of the organisation. But it's actually understanding what is out there and how you bring that all together. So there's definitely a piece of, of discovery needed, probably before you actually, a company embarks on their wellbeing programme. Other challenges, I would say, are around getting employees to feel really inspired about wanting to take care of their well-being and to some extent feeling accountable for for looking after their well-being because at the end of the day you pay them to do a job is it okay for them to turn up if they're not well and I think there's a a perception out there that organizations today need to be this sort of paternalistic figure a, a them and us situation but in my view it's very much more of a partnership and actually finding that right balance between paternalism and autonomy and I think I mentioned earlier in terms of where we need to get to It's around changing the narrative from prevention, coping, surviving, to a much more uplifting narrative of thriving, energised employees and workplace cultures. So there's definitely a piece around the shifting the narrative that, that could be certainly improved. And then finally, the other challenge is really just bringing it all together. One of the biggest issues we see with a lot of organisations we work with is that they really want to do it, but it's 
you know, there's an organisation of 30,000 people or even 10,000 people or 500 people, but it's left to someone to do as part of their day job and they just don't have the bandwidth. And to me, that indicates that the company's not really invested in the wellbeing programme. So our advice would be that organisations look to appoint someone either internally or externally whose sole focus it is to drive the wellbeing programme forward. That's great. Kirsten, thanks again for uh, talking to us today. And in fact, thanks to all my guests on this bumper episode of the C-Suite podcast. So that's Jeff McDonald, Alana Lenny, Monica Carlia, Alan Fogarty, Holly Price, Daniel Rain, and of course, Kirsten Samuel. Now, thanks also to our sponsors, Nuffield Health, to our partners at Endeavour Search and Selection who have put on the event, and to our hosts, Berwyn, Leighton, and Paisner Law. If you've got anything you want to comment on with regards to today's discussion, or indeed any of our previous episodes, then please do like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter or Instagram and get involved there. Those are all linked from the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe on the likes of SoundCloud and iTunes and Acast, which of course if you do use them, uh, then please do give us a positive rating and review to help us up the business charts. Finally, if you want to contact me to get involved in the series in any way, then you can do that via the contact form on the site or via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.